Hello, and welcome to the Social Protection Podcast. I'm your host, Jo Sharp. This September marks the eighth anniversary of socialprotection.org, and we're celebrating across the platform by looking at social protection and impact. In today's episode, we're having a wide-ranging discussion on this theme, what we know about what social protection can do and how that evidence has influenced policy, practice and the global spread of ideas to shape the sector today. Plus, stay tuned this month for Quick Wins when we'll preview our Humans of Social Protection series in which people who benefit from social protection programs tell their own stories of how they have impacted their lives. With me for today's episode, I have two guests. Rebecca Holmes is Senior Research Associate in Gender Equality and Social Inclusion at ODI. She's also a Senior Consultant at STAR, which is the Social Protection Technical Assistance Advice and Resources Facility. And Ben Olkin, who is Professor of Economics at MIT, He's also the director and co-chair of the Social Protection Program at the Abdul Latif Jamil Poverty Action Lab, which is better known as JPAL. Rebecca and Ben, welcome to the Social Protection Podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. Rebecca, your colleagues at ODI put out a very influential systematic review of the evidence of the impact of cash transfers. That was in 2016. And you, of course, have been working in this sector since 2003. If you think about the last 20 years of research and practice of social protection, where do you think the evidence indicates the strongest impacts? There has indeed been a lot of evidence that has been developed over the last 20 years or so, and a strong body of evidence which shows wide-ranging impacts of social protection interventions. But I think perhaps probably some of the strongest evidence can be seen in reducing income poverty and inequality in helping populations to cope with the negative impacts of shocks and crises, especially in low-income countries. We also see the role of social protection in supporting people's livelihood opportunities through increased savings, increased assets such as livestock ownership, access to financial services, for example. And we also see across other sectors that social protection has a strong role in supporting household investments in and individuals uptake in the use of basic services, for example, particularly in health and education. Social protection can increase attendance in school, as well as also supporting improvements in food and nutrition security, such as improvements in dietary diversity. More recently, we've seen much stronger evidence around the impacts of social protection around gender equality as well, and that social protection programmes tend to report higher impacts on women and girls in comparison to men and boys, although obviously we need to take pre-existing gender differences into consideration there. But also more broadly, that cash transfers in particular can have multiplier effects on the economy, and that well-designed social protection programmes are also cost-effective, which have been important in the take-up of social protection as well. Coming to you now, Ben, JPAL has been evaluating social protection programmes in many contexts since its establishment in 2003. How do you think our understanding of these impacts, some of these impacts that Rebecca has taken us through, how has that influenced some of the sort of big picture trends in the way social protection is developing as a field? Joe, it's a great question. 
There's been a lot of sort of research findings that I think have helped influence the debate. Let me give you a few of them. One thing that Rebecca mentioned is there's been a lot of evidence on the impact of cash transfers. I very much agree with that. You know, people, I think, didn't necessarily know how people would use the cash and what the impacts of that would be. And I think that the sort of having a rigorous body of evidence has helped show that people are using the cash for all kinds of useful things that they sort of really you know, need, need the assistance for. So that I think it's been very important to document. Another thing which I think has been really influential is the impact of conditional cash transfers. Conditional cash transfers, most notably sort of started with the Progressive Program in Mexico, were evaluated through large-scale randomized trials. And those showed both in Mexico and then when they were sort of replicated in other contexts that the conditional cash transfers would basically require the beneficiaries of those programs to send their kids to school or get regular health checkups. Those have been shown to not only have important impacts from the cash on sort of household well-being, but also to have had demonstrable impacts on some of those targeted activities. In some sense, maybe that's not so surprising. If you require people to do that, they're going to do more of it. But I think the fact that those were rigorously evaluated has been important in sort of the spread of those programs around the world. But I also think there have been some maybe more surprising things that have come out of the research on conditional cash transfers and related programs that we really wouldn't have necessarily expected. One was a program that some of my colleagues evaluated in Morocco on what was called a labeled conditional cash transfer. And they compared a program where the conditions were actually rigidly enforced to a program that had sort of very similar framing, telling people, you know, this program is important, you're supposed to take your kids to school and bring them to health centers or whatever, but that they didn't kind of cut people off if they didn't fulfill the conditions, it wasn't rigorously enforced. And they found actually very similar impacts from that labeled conditional cash transfers from the actual conditional cash transfer. And so that sort of raised a whole set of questions about, is it the framing that's really important? Or is it the enforcement of the conditions per se? And I think there's different pieces of evidence on different topics that sort of has maybe some different results there. But I think it's suggesting to people that thinking through how do you get those conditions enforced effectively, it it may be a little more subtle than people had originally thought through. A third one, I think, and this echoes something Rebecca said, is this idea that for certain households, some types of programs that give them asset transfers, perhaps with some supporting activities, can lead to sort of permanent changes in the livelihoods that those households have. And there have been a number of studies that some of my colleagues have been involved in in multiple countries evaluating these programs and have found, you know, not just sort of a year later, but three years later, four years later, even longer in some cases, that households who receive these asset transfers are have a substantially higher income than the ones who didn't. The important caveat I would say to that is these programs aren't necessary for everybody, number one. And number two, the programs are pretty complex. They don't just give you a, an asset like a cow or a goat or something by itself. They have a lot of supporting activities that go with that to sort of help you figure out how do you manage this asset productively. So the impact of this research has been to say, okay, these approaches maybe can work and there's a real possibility here. Rebecca, I wanted to put the same question to you. Where do you think you've seen impact and evidence play a role in the spread of ideas and the way that this field has evolved? I think overall that both the volume but also the quality of evidence that has been generated, particularly from cash transfers over the last two decades, for example, I think that's really helped to make the case for investment in social protection programs. And it's one of the reasons why we've seen the investment from policymakers, the investment from donors as well, and development partners in terms of 
investing and supporting this as a policy tool for poverty reduction. And I think it's also helped that the impacts that have been evaluated have been quite wide ranging across income poverty, across inequality, food insecurity, nutrition, health and education sectors, economic growth. And I think this has really helped to sort of push the social protection agenda and its discourse, especially in seeing it as an investment and not as a cost. And I think that this has also had influence on other trends and sort of other thinking. And here I'm especially thinking about the example of the humanitarian and the development nexus. In the early 2000s, there was also a shift in humanitarian assistance as well, or a more visible shift in using cash transfers as well. For example, we can see the grand bargain and its focus on the cash work stream. Most recently, we see that in the quest for enhanced linkages and coordination between humanitarian assistance and social protection in the COVID response. And increasingly, we also see that playing out now as well in the context of high levels of displacement and climate change. The evidence on social protection and cash transfers in particular have evolved and influenced those as well. So you've both talked about the need to bring nuance to this kind of question of impact. For example, as you were saying, Ben, those original evaluations of conditional cash transfers showed impact, but then subsequent work has found that other forms of cash transfers that are labelled or even unconditional can also be effective. And it raises that question not just of what the impact is, but why that impact exists, what else is going on and even whether there might be better ways of achieving similar outcomes. And it does seem that sometimes when we get to the point of trying to replicate these approaches in other countries, some of that nuance can get lost. Ben, Rebecca, what do you think about that challenge? As you're moving, there's always this this question of sort of, you know, if you see a result in one context, how do we know whether it will be applicable in a different context? I think we want to understand to what degree that the contexts themselves are similar or different. So if you're going to be porting a result from one place to somewhere that seems very similar, you probably have a reasonable degree of confidence the results are going to be similar. If the context is really different, then maybe you need to do some additional evaluation work to make sure that it's actually going to work in that new context as well. And the second thing is sort of the body of evidence. If we see a, a, something that has worked in you know seven different contexts, which are all very different, and the results are pretty similar, I think we have a reasonable degree of confidence that that's a pretty generalizable result, that if we go to that eighth context, it's going to find very similar results. If we see something that works really effectively, but only in kind of one place, then I would say to a policymaker, before you sort of just take that headline result and scale it up in somewhere very different, you may also want to be building some impact evaluation into your new program to make sure that those results are applicable in your context too. In addition to that, I think the evidence that has been built recently around gender equality and looking at the potential impacts that social protection can have on particular gendered outcomes as well, whether that's sort of a cross supporting maternal health or supporting adolescent girls to have other opportunities other than early marriage and keeping them in school. I think those are really exciting findings, but again, just highlighting the importance of context, the political economy, community, public, political views in applying sort of different 
programs and the expectations of that and I think especially when we get into issues like gender equality women and girls empowerment which can often be sensitive but I think there's a really strong body of evidence emerging around these areas and and it's exciting to see how these are also being applied in different contexts and evaluated. Yes we ran a three-part series earlier this year on social protection and gender-based violence and it really explored a lot of that emerging evidence which as you say is coming from a lot of different places and to some of the points we've been making about nuance you know social protection programs do seem to be generally quite positive or at least not obviously negative on issues around gender-based violence but there are some exceptions and for those stories that seem to be finding male backlash for example it is really important to unpack that and understand why. Let me turn to policy now Ben and I wanted to ask you about how the evidence and impact all this data we're deriving from these evaluations and experiments how that's used by policymakers Policymakers are, of course, weighing up a range of factors when they decide how and where to invest in social protection, as they are with any form of public policy, public spending. How have you seen the findings from JPAL's research interact with some of these other processes, the sausage making that goes into actually getting programs funded and implemented at scale? It's a great question. And maybe I can draw on my own experience working primarily in Indonesia. One way is when a policymaker specifically says, I would like some evidence on this topic. And here's a great example of this. So Indonesia had a program where it was distributing subsidized rice to millions of households. And they were concerned about who was exactly getting the rice, making sure it was going to the right individuals. They were getting their full entitlement. So they had this idea that they were going to give out identity cards, which basically say, you are a beneficiary of this program. And the idea kind of went up the chain. And the vice president of Indonesia said, you know, before I sign off on this thing and mail out a million of these identity cards, I would like to know is this going to work? And is there potentially be some backlash for people who don't get the identity cards? And he said, so I'm going to put a pause on this and I would like you guys to find some evidence on this. And we were working very closely with the Indonesian government and in response to this designed kind of a very rapid randomized trial where we worked with the Indonesian government to do a pilot program in 600 villages across three different provinces in which we said, okay, we're going to do this a pilot basis. We'll help you randomize which villages will get the ID cards, which won't. And we designed a kind of a rapid evaluation, found that actually the identity cards were very successful, made a huge difference in sort of the, the intended beneficiaries getting more of what they deserve and actually reducing leakage in the program. And then I think that was one useful input to the government when they then decided to go ahead and said, okay, this seems to be working. Let's go ahead and scale this up and send the identity cards to 15 million households. We've been working on questions about targeting, in particular, this idea that sort of communities have information about who's most in need of assistance and that that can be a useful way of determining beneficiaries for programs, particularly in in low information environments or environments where maybe the community knows who's recently unemployed in their neighborhood or who most is in need of assistance, but it would be maybe hard for the central government sitting thousands of miles away to know that information. So we had done a study on this in around 2009, 2010 or so, and had shown that sort of community targeting was very effective in Indonesia at matching local concepts of poverty and did similarly in terms of more database approaches and better actually in terms of matching local concepts of poverty. That's what we had shown in this earlier study. Fast forward 10 years later when COVID hit and the government was saying, we need to distribute assistance to people who have been hit by this shock. And 
it's possible that the people who need assistance now are not exactly the same people who were poor six months ago because the economy had this huge shock and it was a new set of people who might need assistance. They did many, many things in Indonesia in response to this. One of the things they did was rapidly set up a very large community-based cash assistance program. They had a fund that was given out to villages, mostly for use for infrastructure called the Donadesa or the Village Fund. And they set aside, I believe it was 40% of the Village Fund that could be used for cash transfers to villagers that were identified through a community-based process. My understanding from what I heard from our government partners is that in the debate about whether this was a good idea, they were explicitly able to look back at the community-based targeting study that we had done 10 years earlier to say, okay, we know in Indonesia, because we already have this body of research that was already done, that community targeting can be really effective here, and it's going to lead to the right set of people being chosen. There's not going to be concerns about capture by local elites. It's going to work reasonably well. And that, I think, gave them the confidence to go ahead with this kind of rapid policy scale up. Indonesia is a context that I also know really well. We've worked with some of the same policymakers in government. And I think coming back to something Rebecca was saying earlier, where you really do see some of this evidence being presented is in decisions around particularly expansion and that kind of investment case. And of course, it's not just government here, it's finance institutions like the World Bank that are also drawing on some of this evaluation work in order to make the case for lending operations. I did want to briefly comment on the community targeting example, that quite important piece of research, which I've seen cited in lots of contexts about how community-based targeting can be effective as directly compared in this case with the proxy means test, with a way to try and individually assess people's poverty status, is interesting because, of course, in Indonesia, all of the formal social protection remains very much within this poverty targeting paradigm. So that study 10 years ago didn't necessarily change very much about the way that the mainstream programs were targeted. And I would say arguably some of the focus around cards that was really about actually pinning down who those people were it was sort of a piece with that kind of poverty targeting paradigm, which is just where Indonesia's social protection program is at. But I agree in COVID, it was super interesting to see that paper coming out again and used to kind of emphasize that communities can make these decisions and particularly under emergency circumstances, that's the time to allow for that kind of latitude. Rebecca, coming back to you, as we have started to discuss what works in one place or during one experiment won't necessarily work everywhere. What are some examples of this and what do you think that tells us about the limits of evidence, evaluation and technocratic interventions in general? Also, just reflecting and coming back to the conditional cash transfers, which I know that we've talked about quite a bit, they show positive impacts that are also quite specific in terms of the design conditional on sending children to school or meeting particular health visit requirements. And also, you know, the context in which they especially originally were implemented in middle income countries in Latin America. And I think there was a phase where the positive evidence and impacts of those sort of translated into carrying these types of conditional cash transfers across to other country contexts with perhaps not 
an assessment really or looking at whether they were applicable it's sort of you know there's or we know something works well here and we might take it there but I think what that really does show is that thinking through the types of community dynamics the political economy but also things like the capacity and staff within institutions to either monitor the conditions or the capacity, the availability, but also the quality of services which you're expecting people to access really have such an important bearing on what the programme design should be and also what you can expect the outcomes to be. I think obviously some of those issues aren't really considered when you talk about social protection design and implementation in a void or you only just talk about the technical design aspects rather than thinking about the context in which it operates and I think again also coming back here to the importance of understanding community dynamics as well and community preferences and how important that is in terms of determining and informing the types of social protection design and implementation for instance, for social protection programmes, which also support women and girls to access sexual and reproductive health or to access sort of savings groups. And in some contexts, having male implementers doesn't really work. But in other contexts, having female service providers really increases the uptake of that. So understanding those kind of dynamics is really important. And I just wanted to reflect a bit on what Ben articulated as well around what helps translate impacts into policy. I was talking to some people from the transfer project and they've been doing quite a lot of work on that. And they highlighted a few particular examples or key takeaways that they've been working on and, and learning as well. And some of these included making sure that the evaluations, that the research is linked to national policy priorities. I mean, Ben, this is exactly what you were saying in terms of the Indonesia context. It was also based on demand, what was needed at the time. And if you're in a situation to be able to respond to that, it's brilliant in terms of informing policy. Another area is creating regional learning communities. It's looking across regions and within countries and being able then to explore those context specifics, but also explore differences and providing technical support in how to implement research findings or translate research findings into actual sort of policy and programming support at national level is really important. And then another key takeaway was around building local capacity, both in terms of research, but also in supporting and enabling local advocacy actors to take the research and work with that. And I think this often comes as a challenge when we have more global research rather than it being country specific. There's a need for both, but I think it's just really important to think of those national linkages and opportunities as well. We've talked a little bit about the evidence, for example, around women's empowerment, gender-based violence, but what I'd be interested to hear from you is whether there are gaps in the impact data, particularly for marginalised and excluded groups that you think could be better understood or areas that you'd like to see more work on? Yeah, I think there's a lot of really positive and good evidence has been generated over the last sort of 10, 15 years, I would say, that sort of looks beyond the household as a unit of being a social protection recipient. There's a lot of increasing body of work around gender, but looking at how 
gender intersects with other inequalities or other social markers such as disability, ethnicity, certain age groups such as adolescents and older people is still not systematically addressed through social protection interventions. But I think there's also particular outcomes as well which aren't necessarily captured yet within social protection impact evaluations which could also be really helpful in understanding more around these impacts of gender and intersectionality and disability. So it's not only a question of disaggregating what data we have by female and male recipients. It's about looking and asking particular questions around how the receipt of social protection influences individuals. Some of the examples of that includes understanding risks of violence and discrimination and and harmful social norms, looking at that carefully and ethically, but having more of an opportunity to look at the role that social protection can play, especially given the heightened risks that marginalised populations often face. Looking at the care economy as well, for example, in terms of outcomes and how that influences people's ability to participate in social protection programmes as well as benefit from it. And then, you know, issues such as voice and agency, women's decision making ability, how social protection can support more marginalised communities in terms of engaging in social activities, social cohesion and inclusion. I think those are areas that we have some evidence on, but not systematically. And I think that's a huge gap which could be filled in future. Ben, you gave us some great examples from Indonesia specifically, where policymakers are actively seeking out evidence and using it in different ways, perhaps moving away from Indonesia and more generally. Where do you think we see policymakers, program designers making choices that actually don't have a strong evidence base or even seem to run counter to the established evidence? And if decisions aren't based in evidence, what are they based on, in your opinion? Great question. One thing that we see coming up again and again is this concern that social assistance programs tend to lead people to work less. And that, I think, is just a persistent view out there. We wrote a paper on this, which we actually found, you know, we analyzed seven different randomized trials across six different countries and found no evidence across any of them that giving out cash assistance programs or other conditional cash transfers led to less work. But, but somehow this myth persists. I actually think this is an example where there's a bit of confusion because there are programs that have very strong income phase-outs particularly programs in high-income countries that are based on sort of your taxable income or something that phase out very rapidly as you earn more income. There were cases of older programs, most of which have been eliminated, like in the U.S. and other contexts, where the phase-out rate was greater than 100% tax rate. And so, yes, if you have a program with a tax rate greater than 100% on your income, there might be some implications that those could reduce labor supply. That's just not the case for the vast majority of the way these even now well-designed programs in high-income countries, and certainly the programs in low- and middle-income countries, don't have that feature. A second example is direct fuel subsidies turn out to be very difficult to get rid of. I don't fully understand the political economy of why they are so popular, despite the fact that we think that they're pretty poorly targeted. And in general, it's middle class and higher income people that are consuming more of those subsidized products. And so it's not a particularly effective way of distributing assistance to those who need it the most. They do seem to be pretty resilient programs politically. So understanding why that is and how to make those policies more effectively pro-poor, to me, is an important area for future research. Yeah, we were discussing 
the use of food subsidies during the inflation crisis on an episode last year and the fact that a lot of governments, when faced by rising costs of bread and so on, were subsidising those, despite the fact that they were also regressive and also in some cases, despite the fact that they just had a really positive experience using cash transfers instead for COVID. And I think some of these things... As you say, it's the political economy. There's also just something about the fundamentals of providing, you know, government's role is to provide food in a time where people are hungry. I will say one, to link it back to some of the research that we've talked about, I do think one challenge is that some of the more targeted cash transfer programs, although they are very effective and much more pro-poor on average, they're not perfect. There is exclusion error. And so some people don't get included in those programs. Governments often face a choice of, you know, we're in a real, uh, real crisis moment and we're worried about sort of large numbers of people who aren't going to be able to eat, you might choose to do a broader-based program, particularly in that kind of moment, because you don't want anybody to be excluded. And that could be part of the thinking. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And we haven't really talked about this, but just that recognition that implementation of a social protection program is actually really hard to do well, especially at scale. As Rebecca was saying, you know, involves a lot of individuals, people, institutions. So it's one thing to say, oh, this cash transfer will have all these impacts. It's quite another thing to be able to roll those out rapidly or effectively or at scale. And those are the trade-offs that policymakers are often having to make. I wanted to move away from statistically significant samples to some really individual and personal anecdotes. You have both been involved in fieldwork. You've met with people who participate in social protection programs. Are there individual stories of impact that have influenced you, or that have shaped your thinking about why social protection is so important? Absolutely. And I've been very fortunate to spend time collecting data from social protection beneficiaries, from social protection recipients in several countries in sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia, particularly doing qualitative work and you know, being fortunate enough to sit down in people's houses and, and chat with them and, and understand sort of the situation that they are in. One of the issues that always stands out to me across all of the, the research and the interviews that I've done with the support of national research partners is the personal and individual resilience of women and men in the context of the complex but often compounding challenges that they face day to day and importantly the role that social protection can make in enhancing that resilience and I think that has come across to me in different types of social protection interventions that I've looked at you know cash transfers in Nepal disability benefits in Nepal, asset transfers in Bangladesh to public works programs in Rwanda. And the additional support that social protection is able to make is absolutely critical in people's lives. And I think something else which comes up time and time again to me is this additional complementarity that providing economic transfers or cash support in combination with other types of programs, whether that's access to skills training or if it's access to community social behaviour norms or programs which invite men and women to talk about gender-based violence across different contexts. Those have shown such promising examples and the stories that you hear from people in terms of the benefits that they receive from them is really incredible. Ben, what about you? This past year, I, I did a trip to, uh, to several different countries in sub-Saharan Africa looking at social protection in those contexts as well. One example that sort of really struck out to me was an older couple who we met with in rural Kenya 
They were, I think, both in their 80s. And we were talking through what their income was like. And after we sort of did the math kind of with them of sort of, you know, what's your income in the high season and the low season? And how are you sort of supporting yourself? What I realized was that half of their income in the low season, fully half of their income was coming out of an elderly cash transfer that they were getting from the Kenyan government. Just realizing that that in terms of just their basic day-to-day needs in that tough period, how much support they were getting through that and what a difference it was making their lives is something that was really stuck, stuck with me. Rebecca and Ben, thank you so much for such a rich, interesting and wide ranging discussion about social protection and impact. And thank you for joining me today on the Social Protection Podcast. Thank you, Joe. Thank you. Before we go, we like to end each episode with some quick wins. We ask a guest to bring in some recommendations for research, news or events that have sparked their interest and we think you should know more about. Today we have Mary Imbong joining us for Quick Wins. Mary is a social justice advocate and communication specialist in the Philippines, and she is also an ambassador for socialprotection.org. Welcome, Mary. Hello, and thank you so much for having me. Mary, you are a member of the Ambassadors Program for socialprotection.org. You're one of 24 ambassadors this year. These are online positions recruited through UN volunteers from all over the world. So first up, let's talk about the piece you've prepared for our Humans of Social Protection series, which looks at how social protection programs have impacted the lives of the people who benefit from them. Can you tell me briefly about the story you wrote and why you chose this particular focus? I wrote about a paid paternity leave beneficiary from the Philippines. His name is JL Florentino, and he's a first-time parent to a lovely baby girl. And I was actually quite moved by his story because I could only imagine how a new parent might have this strong longing to care for their newborn child and their wife post-delivery. And also because their responsibility to care for this, you know, tiny human during their first crucial weeks or even months after the delivery is shared by both the mother and the father. I think it's just as important that fathers are not only involved, but they also have the peace of mind and the financial security to be there for their family. So in writing about what a paid paternity leave meant for him, for JL, it's really my hope that more people will be more aware of this benefit and even maybe even advocate for ways to enhance it. Thank you. It's a really lovely story and a really nice angle, as you say. Is the paid paternity leave benefit in the Philippines an entitlement for everyone? Or is that something that JL received because he participates in a social security kind of program? Where does that entitlement come from for him? Filipinos who are fathers who are employed by their companies and who are legally married. And I think now there's a new amendment to it. I don't think you have to be legally married, but you have to be living together. I'm not quite sure if it's already been passed or if it's still considered as a law. On this podcast this year, we've talked quite a lot about women's empowerment around things like care and also gender-based violence. And of course, that 
crucial element of involving men to achieve the kind of equality that we're looking for, both in terms of care and work. So yeah, it's a great story. And this is one story in a series that will be published on socialprotection.org's platform in September as part of our eighth anniversary. And while we're talking about impact, how have you become interested in social protection and how did you become an ambassador? What was the Mm. story there? Yeah, I wish there was a more interesting story, (laughs) but I just stumbled across the post asking for social protection ambassadors. So formally, I work in the development sector, which focuses more on sustainable development, good governance, youth empowerment. And I've never formally had this background in social protection. So I was curious. I know that it was a term that I hear often, especially when we have policy briefings or meetings with ambassadors or government officials. So it was mostly out of curiosity that I applied. And then when I took the courses that was required for ambassadors, I was pleasantly surprised to learn about all of these terminologies that really helped me articulate the ideas that I already knew by practice, but not necessarily formally in theory. So it was like gaining this knowledge that I sort of knew, but not in a way that I could articulate fluently in the social protection lingo. Now that you've been exposed to these theories and concepts and some of that learning, and of course, integrating that with your expertise in development and of course, your knowledge of the Philippines, I'd be really interested to hear your reflections about where you observe the most important impacts of social protection in the Philippines or what's really struck you about how social protection works in the Philippines. I'm going to try to contextualize this to the current situation in the Philippines. For the past two years, there's been a high headline inflation rate, and I'm sure other countries can also relate to this. But in our case, I can see that social protection has been critical in addressing the country's food and energy crisis, most particularly for the vulnerable populations. So these include women, people who are living below the poverty line, or farmers and fisher folk, etc. I can see that the government has been running several, uh, mostly social assistance and livelihood programs to try to address the different risks, considering are confronting the different households, particularly those that have very small children. Uh, So the Philippines is a very young population. I think we're getting younger by the day, which is amazing. But it's not that great if the systems we have in place are not able to support that, especially for babies who are still within their first 1,000 days. Thank you so much for that. That's wonderful. Finally, in our quick win segment, we like to bring other resources. And I know you wanted to highlight a webinar that you recently attended as part of your university studies. So can you tell us about it, please? So I encountered this webinar co-hosted by the Ateneo de Manila University. It focuses really more on food security, social safety nets, and social protection, which I found quite timely and insightful, given the situation that I mentioned earlier. So This particular webinar is actually part two of a year-long series, I think, which talks a lot about the policy and governance of sustainable food systems in the Philippines. It's also worth noting that the Philippines is a highly agricultural country, and so this particular sector is, is quite important for our context. The webinar gave a really informative assessment of how the country has been doing on its road to achieving SDG goal number two, zero hunger. 
and how social protection programs contribute to alleviating hunger. And not just that, but also achieving food security for the most vulnerable populations. I presented a lot of actionable and timeless insights, in my opinion, about how governments in general maximize the impact of different social protection programs. Thank you. And as always, we'll put links to all these resources in our show notes. Mary Imbong, thank you so much for your time on the Social Protection Podcast today. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. And thank you again for listening to the Social Protection Podcast. We are a production of socialprotection.org. Follow us on Twitter at SP underscore Gateway and find us on Facebook, YouTube and LinkedIn. Subscribe to this podcast via Apple Podcasts or Spotify and we are so grateful when you leave a review. Back next month. See you then.